that we didn't and what we have now Welcome to Jubilee Street, a Nick podcast. My name is Ian McCurtis. His name is Jake Jejun Curtis. And every week we talk about different Nick Cave songs. This week, us, Blue the Intern Dog, Intern to the Intern Dog Buffy, we're calling upon the author to explain. This is going to be a very prolix episode. All right, Jake, where where to even fucking begin? This is a dense song. So I think we're probably going to get pretty heady this episode. Let's start kind of surface level, and then we'll work our way to the more, like, abstract shit. How's that sound? Sounds good to me. Um, so... This is the first song that we've done from Dig Lazarus Dig, and I didn't have much context going into the record. I haven't listened to it before, like a lot of the albums we've talked about um, from the earlier period, basically anything before the Ambient Trilogy. Um, And this song just... It's completely different than anything Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds have done up until this point. It does all it's it it, it came out in 2008, which is when I I started feeling like bands started doing these weird transitions and I feel like this album is almost inspired by hip hop in a way Be- or or even like the way like the sort of Brian Eno recording techniques from the like you know, like another green world and stuff like that. And sort of like the, it, it, it's almost like this album kind of made it possible for them to make the ambient trilogy because there's so much stuff on like ghosting and, and, and skeleton tree and push the sky away where there's just these sort of like weird kind of transitions. And there's like this kind of, like garagey, like almost like nine inch nails, like you know, break beat that kind of come not break beat, but like drum beat that kind of comes in every once in a while in the song and like breaks all the tension and like build up up from the sort of like manic, frantic, lyrical vocal delivery by Nick. And I think you can kind of tell that this is like post the first grinder man record. Um, because it has that sort of like grimness that that had that sort of like free grimy feel. Um, and yeah, so this is like, you could, you could almost look at this as like grinder man 1.5, you know, it's in between uh-huh. one and two. I think the big difference, you know, cause there's always that wonder, like, why wasn't this just a grinder man album? I think the big difference, I guess, would be one, I don't think Nick Cave played guitar on this record, and two, I feel like Grinderman had that garage rock energy, especially in the lyrics, where it's very... Uh, sexual. Abstract. Yeah, sexual as fuck. Um, 
And Dig Lazarus Dig, I think, has way more of a li literary bent to it. It still has a lot of the classic Nick Cave lyrical styles, just more garagey music. But it doesn't. I There's feel like a... lyrically, it's not that similar with Grinderman. The these are some of the best lyrics he's ever written in this song. This is this album's the funniest Nick Cave's ever been. Um. I think that the intended purpose of this song is not as evident as it feels on the first listen, which is help us make sense of this text that you've given us. What's the meta text? What's the subtext? Uh, what's really going on in this story? And, you know, it's got this very like, I think the cover of the album sets the tone even more because it's like, sort of a neon like sign that you might see on like in like New York where you're in you walk into some den and it's a, it could be a sign on like a talk show TV show feels and very broadway you get the you get the yeah broadway like you get the distinct impression that there's like a that there's like an interview process happening in this song but it's just like one guy interviewing himself Kind of like um, it kind of has that want that en the energy of that scene in the Joker movie where he's on TV with Robert De Niro, and I think what a lot of people find interesting about the Joker that actually think about the character and don't just like him because he's like a cultural icon at this point is that you know there's always something, there's always another show going on with the Joker. It's not just, it's just not, it's not just about him being on TV. There's something else that's about to happen. There's like a flying Gerber baby doll that's going to explode and kill a bunch of people like across the city. And this is just some big distraction. So um, with that, I don't, I don't want to ramble too long about it. I, I have a lot of ideas about what's going on here. Uh, so why don't you take us into the next? It reminds me of, phase. of, um, I mean, I feel like there's so many influences on this album that Nick Cave didn't have before, but like thematically it reminds me of the Tom Waits, like Frank Frank's wild years and that era where he was kind of like going for that, like glitz and glam, the kind of thing he, he never really did before until then. It's definitely like an embrace of being kind of campy. Um, you know, cause Nick Cave started off like, Birthday party was very violent, very abrasive. Then you move into a lot of ballads and love songs, as well as like the murder ballads, you know, darkness. And then this, like you said, feels like something new. It's very funny. It reads like a lot of it reads like beat poetry. And is again another way of Nick Cave reinventing himself time and time again. You know, this 30 years into his career or whatever. That's another thing that was on my mind here is it was hard to believe that the man who put this music out was like 51. Not that age means anything. It's just in the span of his career that he had probably put out the best record he'd put out up to that point. Like as far as just like maintaining an energy that he had when he was 18 up to being like 51. 
was it's staggering. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, it feels young. It feels Grinderman. Like Grinderman feels very old. Grinderman feels like a guy who is aging and like taking a wink at that and kind of. You know, it's kind of like a joke. Like this is a band of fifty, fifty somethings being sleazy, making music in the garage. This album sounds similar in a lot of ways, but I don't think it sounds like middle-aged people. It sounds very young to me. Yeah, I think that there was a trend in music, uh, like throughout time to that leans towards like heavy experimentation and like just creating noise and packaging it as this like artistic statement. And I think a lot of people would argue that noise music is an artistic statement. And I do think it can be done well. And sometimes it's just really abrasive and I don't always, I'm not always able to listen to it, but a lot of artists can do it well. Now I think 2008 was a big transitionary transitionary time for music because it was after 2010 that even big pop artists were engaging with sounds that were super abrasive and like almost so abrasive that they were cathartic to listen to and I think that the biggest pop icon at the time was Kanye West and in 2009 he put out my Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy, which was a year after Dig Lazarus Dig. And a lot of people probably would arguably say that's his best album. But it also had all of these kind of introductions to what he would do on Yeezus with like the screaming and the screeching and the heavy synthesizers and the really crashing like thudding bass and the sudden sample changes and beat switches and you know that stuff would sort of influence other big pop artists and like you know people like Travis Scott kind of popularized 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 sorry I can't talk today um that very sort of angsty sound and you know I don't think it was a coincidence that Nick Cave was you know, a little bit ahead of the curve because I think he's always kind of been ahead of the curve with this kind of music. I think he, I think it's because he's creating his own dictionary and, and, you know, he's very particular with how he puts all these pieces together. And at this point, the band had completely shifted members and this had changed, this had just changed tone completely. And now I feel like it's hard to imagine an iteration of the band that doesn't have Warren Ellis in it. And also, I don't think this song would function as well without the, the organ that's like so far left in the mix that it just sounds like a crashing, mm -hmm. like piece of just, just someone like smashing a hammer into a wall or a cymbal or something like it sometimes doesn't make any sense. It's just as if Nick is just putting his hand on the organ while he's singing and he doesn't care what it sounds like. It's, it doesn't, yeah. this, 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 the sound and the creation of the design of the sound in this song, it, it, the lyrics wouldn't work without it and vice versa. It's a really well crafted piece of art. 
Yeah, it reminds me a lot of that, like, 60s stuff, the, like, Phil Spector, even, like, the Beatles, where, like, a lot of the ideas are things that, like, a noise rock band would do, but they're executed in a fashion that's poppy. Because, yeah, you know, exactly. you could remix a song and make it noisy as hell, but they did it in such a way that it doesn't sound as weird as it actually is. So... I was thinking a little bit about how, how we deconstruct these episodes so that we can keep a structure to the way that we talk about the songs. And then at the end, mm-hmm. it might make a little, it, not that I, I think we're still growing as a podcast, but um, it might make a little more sense at the end if we kind of break down each section. So basically up until like what I'm going to talk about now was just, me commenting on like the sound design and like the way that they play their instruments. And so now I want to kind of move into like lyrics and performance of the song. So for listeners who haven't ever seen this song performed live, go to YouTube and look up a live performance. Uh, Nick was rocking a very suave, like mustache goatee around this era. So he, he looks good in the video. He's got that. He's just got that look. He, he really, Everything works so much in tandem with him. I don't understand. He's like a, an anomaly. Um, so I want to move into the lyrics. So do you have anything you want to start off here with? Yeah, I mean, so much. So let's see. The first thing let's talk about since we're both writers, the kind of refrain of prolix, which is not a word that I had ever heard of before the song, but think it refers to is uh what we would know as purple prose you know like overly descriptive unnecessary writing stuff that can be edited out not why he says there's nothing a pair of scissors can't yeah nothing a pair of scissors can't fix okay so we'll see how noticeable this is with my editing we had to take a little break uh blue the intern dog and buffy the intern to blue the intern dog just dropped off some Christmas presents for us, some late Christmas presents. They got us both uh, pizzas that they uh, got out of a Little Caesars dumpster, which I would say is a thoughtful present, but it really wasn't thoughtful at all because Jake's a vegan and I have a blood feud with Little Caesar (laughs) and would never eat it. Oh, yeah. So, you know, as usual, they tried and they failed. Well... But Most anyway, people Jake, have the elf. Oh no! Please comment on your on your wonderful gift. Well, I already ate it, um, and I just Bad took idea. one of those uh, pills. I just I just took one of those probiotic pills that helps you digest <laughs> lactose. So I I ate the entire pizza. Um, we'll see what happens. We might need to hurry up had, with the rest of this episode. What's that Jake thing that dogs do where their eyes get all glassy and they make you make you feel sad? Oh, puppy, puppy, dog, puppy eyes? dog eyes. Yeah, she was doing her puppy dog eyes when she because she handed me this rancid pizza, and I was like, "Well, I can't let her down." So yeah, we'll see how I feel in like, you know, two, two, three hours when we're in the middle of the next episode we're recording. So, um, so we were talking about prolix and the idea of uh, like unnecessary detail in writing, and how most people don't enjoy reading that, but yet they teach you to write that way in school. 
So being someone, so I know that you started into college and then it wasn't for you and you decided to stop going. Not for me. And I ended up getting a, a bachelor's degree in English. And most of what I learned from that degree was that basically a huge chunk of everything they teach you to do in high school, you're not supposed to do when you're in college. Yeah. Which I then applied to basically you pay. And I was, I was lucky because my mom works, worked for the university. So I got free tuition. So I am one of the lucky few without huge amounts of student debt, which I do not take for granted. Um, and basically you're paying all this money at a university if you're privileged enough to be able to go uh, like myself and my brother were, and they teach you how to do critical thinking. And part of that critical thinking is that they wasted a lot of my time in high school teaching me things that were not as, ne as necessary as they made them out to be. And I often wonder if when teachers want you to use different words than said, like, you know, Jenny exclaimed when she stepped on a piece of butter or something like, I wonder if it's just because they get tired, like they'll get tired of reading the same words over time. And then you start seeing that these are, there's these writers out there that get lauded for their simplicity and their choice. Their, their diction is very precise and pithy and they, they don't use a lot of words because they can get the feeling out that they're trying to get out and, you know, a three sentence paragraph than you would in like a huge, like 10 or 12 sentence paragraph where you're trying to explain one thing. And it really depends on the writer and how you deliver it. And I think, um, that this, this is the first Nick Cave song. It's about writing a song. And I think, well, so, so what I was getting at with, with that, with the prolix thing is, It's not something most of us enjoy, yet we teach it to our children. And it's sort of, I think one of the ideas in the song is the idea in religion that God is made, or man is made from God's image. So, you know, there's the idea in the song of like all this unnecessary suffering. And why doesn't God just edit it out like prolix? Why doesn't he just take a pair of scissors and edit out all the unnecessary suffering? But if man is made in God's image, we do the same thing in our art. We put unnecessary shit in there instead of editing out. You know, there's an interesting quote where Nick Cave mentioned that he doesn't understand why kids should read Bukowski. And he thinks that all kids should be introduced to reading the Bible from a young age, which I didn't really understand. But I think maybe he was being a bit sarcastic. But... I think when you look past like the, I mean, it's tough because the slavery and the it's, prostitution, it's the same as like teaching. You, yeah. Well, exactly. It's like, it's the same as teaching kids Shakespeare. Like that shit's boring when you're a kid, but like to understand all of literature and like references, it's important to know. Same with the Bible. Like it's probably not very interesting to a kid, but it is important to like everything references the Bible. Like it's universal. Well, that does... Especially Nick Cave references the Bible. Yeah. Well, that's sort of the... Going back to the Grinderman uh, reference from earlier in the show. 
Grinder Man, I think, was where he put his tome away. And then this one, he kind of stepped back into it because Lazarus is a pretty obvious reference to a biblical text. But uh, that's the thing about writing and, you know, learning about, you know, how to do it and, you know, English wor- English language and composition is that it's really all about the teacher you have. So I never really thought Shakespeare was boring. Othello is one of the, my favorite plays, but um, uh, I think... I still think, I think Shakespeare it, is boring. If I if I were to say that, like, if you hand a 15-year-old Othello and you don't tell him anything about it, but my mind was geared from a young age to theatrics and, like, melodrama, so I... Uh, I just wanted to say, I, I don't think that's everybody that thinks Shakespeare's boring, but I think there is like a universally held truth that he's kind I of I just like have a tough time. Um, the most well-known. I think it's the same brain thing where like you enjoy Thomas Pynchon and I don't, like, I have a hard time comprehending writing that's not written in the way I would talk. Yeah. You know, William Faulkner, same way. Like, I just like, it's like I'll read three pages and I won't comprehend anything. And because it's just so flowery and hard for me to understand. I think there's a lot of my experience that's also tainted in a good way by, you know, going like reading those works in a college setting. So I was spending three hours a week in a classroom, having a teacher explain to me what, you know, all of these other professors and people who studied this stuff for centuries were saying like, this is what's happening here. And then I think the fun part about it, which I think is what this song touches on, is that there's no meaning to anything greater than the one that you individually subscribe to it. So when you listen to We Call Upon the Author, there's... I don't know if you looked up the lyrics on his website but there's several lines where it just says doop 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 and i just i i don't know i i think we oh, can like, spend, he just, like he wrote out the yeah he wrote out the 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 back back background vocals um uh-huh. so i think this song works on three levels and we can kind of dive into them and let me know if you have another like level so I think the surface level, like you said, the first time you listen to the song, uh, there's all this suffering going on in the world. The author being God, we ask him to explain. Like, you know, people are always like, God works in mysterious ways. Well, what the fuck are the mysterious ways? Second level, what I was talking about with the prolix, we do the same thing with art, though. We create art in mysterious ways. And... If we're made in God's image, we do the same shit he does. And then the third level, um, that wonderful part where he's talking about the poem and it's like the waves were soldiers. And he's like, thank you. Like sarcastically, like, don't tell me what the poem means in the poem. Like, let me have my own meaning. It's like, what good is art if the artist tells you what to think? Like, let the audience make their own meaning. So it's sort of like, I'm not a religious person, so this idea, I don't like it, but I think the idea is, like, if art is beautiful when you aren't told the meaning of it, 
maybe God is the same way. Like maybe what makes God beautiful is that you don't know his machinations and his reasoning, which is not an idea I agree with, but I think it's a, it makes a really interesting song. And again, incredible. And the cave was able to fit all three of these like kind of contradictory ideas together in one song. But was there, was there anything else or was that like pretty much the things you took from it or was there something else as far as like a bigger theme? Well, I read through a good amount of articles and reviews talking about either the album as a whole or the subject matter. And there was one article called semiotic analysis for we call upon the author which kind of mentioned stuff like, in analyzing the semiotic meanings present in the album, there are several signs that could point to an engagement with the dominant ideology of the Christian church. However, the album takes on more than just the idea that ideology, and with more thought, there are more symbols and questions that arise throughout the album. We Call Upon the Author is the sixth track and is an example of the garage rock sound that the band admitted to striving for for this particular release. Who is the author and what is he or she the author of? Or is the author just one person? Or is the profession or role of authors in general in question? There are multiple signs that point to engagements with various dominant ideologies in this song. And this essay aims to explore some of these engagements and questions that may arise. Um, you want to talk about prolix? That, that sounded to... like three paragraphs that could have been said in one sentence. That's what I said. Um, Not blaming you. I'm just saying... That was like bullshit I thought music it was, critic it, writing. It was, it was kind of funny to read that because I think by the the second, yeah. In the context of the song. So the last actual verse of the song is, um, down in my bolt hole, I see they've published another volume of un unreconstructed rubbish. The waves of the waves were soldiers moving again. Thank so you, good. thank you, thank you, and again. So, first of all, unreconstructed is a trash word because it doesn't... It, it means that something yeah. was built and then unbuilt and then rebuilt and then unbuilt again. So, um, and then I don't think that the... It's a little... Bolt hole is too similar to butthole, so I also wonder how he's making a joke about how writers can be so far up their own ass that they think they're creating like this, like, you know, next great American, uh, like novel. I never thought of that, but I, am, I bet that's I mean, spot on. Bukowski was, the, was a jerk. Berryman was the best. He, even that in the context of the, the, the sense of humor, the song is crafting. Somebody might think Berryman was an idiot. And Bukowski was a brilliant writer. Mm -hmm. And then the line he wrote, like, pa wet paper mache went the Hemingway, which is a very... Went the Hemingway is funny incredible. line. Weirdly on wings and with maximum pain. It is incredible. Um, which... Yeah, so if any... We, we talked about John Berryman for a minute last week or two weeks ago. If anyone doesn't know, he committed suicide by jumping off a bridge, but mm -hmm. he meant to jump off the bridge into water, 
and kill himself. He <laughs> didn't he didn't walk to the middle of the bridge. He jumped off the end of the bridge and just hit the land. So, you know, weirdly on wings with maximum pain. Gosh. Like he made a suicide more painful than it needed to be because he didn't jump off the bridge the right way. Lack of planning on his part, probably. That's that's like yeah. that's like you are planning to jump off a bridge without checking to see if it's low or high tide. You're in trouble if it's like <laughs> yeah. if the water's too low. Um, th- there's there's really all of these great little lines in there, and I think even in that line, he was kind of poking fun at Hemingway because I think Hemingway basically killed himself with alcohol, right? Like he just was an alcoholic. I think he drank himself to death. I um, I thought he shot himself, but I might be wrong. I'm not a big Hemingway fan. I haven't followed it closely enough. Like, I think I, I kind of lost interest in Hemingway in a big way. I think the last book I read of his was Old Man in the Sea, which was a good book. I, I don't think I've disliked many of his books. I'm just not. You lost interest in a big Hemingway. <laughs> Nice one. Uh, let me see. How did he die? Ernest Hemingway. Death. Oh, he almost died in a plane crash in 1954. That's interesting. Hey, just like, he uh, of- who is it? Clint Eastwood or Harrison Ford? Who's always crashing in the plane? You're right. He ended his own life. He shot himself. Wow. Yeah, that I that section of the song is so wonderful because I love the um, the waves were soldiers. It it reminded me of the year end episode we did a couple weeks ago when I was kind of shitting on the Idols record. Like I hate a piece of art that tells you what it is. You know? Yeah. Let me figure it out for myself what I think it is. Every verse in this song is. Yeah, one of my favorite, like, I'm not a tattoo guy, and I also think this is too wordy to be a tattoo, but if I were, one of my favorite Nick Cave all-time lyrics is, what is this great burdensome dog thing that mediocres my every thought? Because <laughs> that yeah. just, that gives me the goosebumps every time, because it's so, you know, anytime I try to write something or make a song, like, it exists in such this uh, beautiful way in my head, and then when I get it out, when I write the song physically or write the thing, I'm like, this is so like average. This is so bad. It's like, what? Mm-hmm. What is it that's making everything so bad? Everything's messed up around here. Everything is banal and jejun. There's a planetary conspiracy against the likes of you and me in, in this idiot constituency of the moon. Well, he knew exactly who to blame. It's incredible. It's It's amazing lyrics. It's so funny. And if you're an artist type, it's so relatable. And then I think, I mean, I see fan art with this line all the time, but I felt like a vacuum cleaner, a complete sucker, it's fucked up and he's a fucker. <laughs> but what an enormous and encyclopedia brain. I love any time, not any time, but there's a way, you know, in a hip-hop song where you can rhyme the same word twice and it's mm-hmm. like really clever. Mm-hmm. And I guess this isn't cl- quite doing that because he's rhyming sucker with fucker, but it's got that same energy of like being so stupid that it's brilliant, you know? I, I, I guess there's, so there's two verses I wanted to ask you what you thought about. Um, the 
first one, well, I'll do them in chronological order through the song. Oh, rampant discrimination, mass poverty, third world debt, infectious disease, global inequality, and deepening socioeconomic division. It does it in your brain. What do you think is going on with that part? Do you think that's just well, think like that's... a succinct like criticism of like a a band trying to write a song about climate change? Um. Well, I think everything in this song is working on like a meta level and a surface level. So I think on the meta level, yes. But then I think on a more surface level, I think it's just like, uh, you know, call, calling upon the author to explain like literally the title of the song, like, yo, God, like, what the fuck are you doing here? What's, what's the reason for all this? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, but then I yeah, on the metal like, meta level, I think it's like it's uh talking about how cheap it is to talk uh, to write songs about that kind of stuff if you're not going to say it, anything uh, subtle. It made me think about what a conversation between Nick Cave and Grant Morrison would be like. Uh, the comic book writer Grant Morrison. Yeah. In what That's, way? You just mean because uh, Grant Morrison's such a uh, kind of like a heady spiritual. Well, Grant Morrison has a huge obsession with gods and magic, and yeah, like I think he fancies himself like a wizard of some sort, and I think it would be interesting to see the because you haven't read Green Lantern season uh, one, but something happens in that book where there's like this Cthulhu like creature that takes on the sort of classic rendition of God, which is a giant man in a white robe with a white beard. And it's actually this like parasitic, like cannibal planet. And this song just reminds me of like the way that Grant Morrison writes, which is like, He's sort of criticizing everything, and ma- but also like making fun of himself and other people, but also like creating yeah. this sort of like big masterpiece. And I think this is like, I don't know if this is too bold to say so early in the show, like in the in the span of Jubilee Street, but I think as far I don't know if this musically is his best song. I think this might be the most like, this might be the song with the best lyrics he's ever written that we've discussed so far. I, I think it's up there. It, it It's just so funny. Every single line. I mean, the Grant Morrison thing, to anyone who is a comic book fan, that's a very apt description because it's, yeah, it's just everything is working on a genuine level. Like, I don't think the song is a joke. I think it means something to him. Yeah. But there's yeah. also everything is like everything is winking at itself. Everything's making fun of itself while at the same time being genuine. Like the I fucking love the part where he's like my friend Doug's uh, knocking on the window and you like mm-hmm. hear hear the guy being like, yeah. hey, in the background. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Which is like a funny thing. It's probably really fun in the studio to do. But then there's the part about the uh, Book of Holocaust poetry, which is so complete you know, with fucked pictures up to think about complete with pictures as if as if like the poems 
wouldn't mean anything unless you knew the context of the Holocaust and you had the pictures of the like emaciated bodies, you know, like that makes the art more powerful, the context. It's the same thing I always think of modern art where you see like a Rothko painting and it's just like a square, you know, a black square with a red background and, you know, people are like, anybody could do that. My kid could do it. But what but gives it can't. power is like the context. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's true. Well, what gives and, it power is like the reason they were doing it. A lot of the modern art was like specifically rebelling against a certain idea. Mm-hmm. It's not really the painting that you're impressed by. It's the context of the painting. Yeah. That Well, that's what makes, that's why so many writing classes that I took in college and, and even in high school, like they teach you how to analyze like what was happening when the book was released or like when the story or the album was released. Exactly. So like the poetry, the Holocaust poetry is made that much more powerful if you consider that these people in concentration camps are writing the poems. But I think Nick Cave is saying like, isn't it kind of fucked up that like we need that though to be moved? Like, shouldn't it be able to exist on its own? But it can't. We don't work like that. But we like that it exists with it so that we have a reason to feel the like empathy and the, the you know, the tears. And I think people, there are probably people who like going to the Holocaust museum to like, it's going to sound fucked up, but to feel something. Cause they might just, that just, might, no, I mean, like, that's, I mean, that's what being a human is all about is connecting, being a part of this larger human, you know, fucking species. So, you know, because there's the type of people that would be like, I would never go to a Holocaust museum. It's so horrible. Like, why would I do that to myself? But mm-hmm. there is, like, not enjoyment like you would enjoy an amusement park, but there is an enjoyment of, like, feeling human and connecting to that tragedy and sorrow. Yeah. No, I, yeah, 100%. I, I think it, um, It kind of brings me to my next point, which was you mentioned, I was going to ask you about that section about his friend, Doug. And I think that the sort of final point of the lyrics I wanted to touch on was that there is a, an affliction that I think people like, like even somebody who we would say is like successful in their career. Like he's making a modest amount of money being able to perform his music uh, like Nick cave and for Nick, he's gotten to a point where like he's been trying to write lyrics for a song and he's like looking up into the sky or meditating or he's just like thinking to himself like I suck. Somebody tell give me a sign why I'm doing this. Am I wasting my time? And you know, you want this like divine intervention to happen, but what you get is your friend handing you this book and they're like, Oh, Hey, here, but we don't view that stuff as like, as, as like a godly intervention, even though that's, those are the only things that are in human existence. Like my mom will like send me these articles all the time about like self publishing and publishing and stuff like that. Just trying to be helpful and you know, I told her, I was like, you know, I don't always view those as like, a sign, but I'm starting to, because I feel like the more I see something, the more it becomes like, like a actual reality for me. And I think that 
when Doug shows up with the Holocaust poetry and the pictures, it's like, and he says, get ready for a terrain. I think this is like, that's when you, you have, you've been writing really shitty for like seven nights in a row and you've sat down and you're like, well, the last seven nights have been crap, so I'm not going to have anything. And then it just comes out of you. And that's, that's sort of what we live for is we live for that one, maybe if we're lucky more than that, but usually it's like one night or two nights of a week where you write and it might be only be for 10 or 15 minutes, but you're like, you could just go forever because you've got this idea and tap into something, you tap into it. And I think that, that that's, I think it might even be okay to make the assumption that Doug here, like is the author but because he's looking for this other thing, when what he's looking for shows up as something else, he treats it as a, as like, oh, whatever. Like, thanks for the book, dumbass. Um, you know, oh, it's going to rain. Okay, cool. And then, you know, then he starts, it comes back. And then because he doubted it, he kind of returns back to it's that That's sort of the the sort of the whole thing about wanting to be successful in art yeah. is like, you have to continue to return to the canvas and the written page and the guitar or the instrument because it's not always going to be there, but that instrument is always there for you to tap into, to that, you know, Doug angel character. But you have to be open to yeah. receive it. And that's a brilliant point. I hadn't thought about the song that way. There was just that bombing in Nashville a couple days ago on Christmas. And I saw this post from someone and he was like, I lived like, you know, two blocks away from where the bombing was. And two days later, it already feels like everything in my life just feels normal again. And they were kind of talking about how we can normalize anything. Like humans are really good at normalizing crazy situations. Like, if I would have told you in 2018 what coronavirus would be like and what this year would have been like, you would have thought it was the craziest thing ever, but it didn't feel that crazy because we just every day normalize mm -hmm. it and learn to live with it. We're very adaptable. Mm -hmm. But when you were talking about a sign, like I was imagining like Jesus walking on water and I'm sure like, let's say that was real. Those probably people like they were standing there watching it and they were probably like oh i guess uh something about that water you can mm -hmm. just walk on it like they were probably just normalizing it you know so we might get these signs and if we're not open to receiving it we're just like oh yeah i guess uh moses in the burning bush i guess i guess in this part of the world bushes just randomly catch on fire yeah. i don't know if you've seen it but to any of the listeners out there that have there's a movie called spirited away and there's a scene close to the end of the movie where uh, Chihiro has to get on a spirit train to go deliver this gold seal back to a witch. And they're, they're rowing in this like bathtub and then they're just walking in the water and there's like ground underneath them. So it's definitely possible wherever Jesus was when he walked on water that he just happened to like, it, wouldn't that be so funny if every miracle was just a trick, like a like a sleight of hand trick? Like he just like found a patch yeah. of water, like a magician. Yeah, where he just was able to figure out how to walk. I mean, what if Jesus was just a magician and you know all these David people? David Yeah, yeah. He's like just David Copperfield, like transported back like thousands of years, and then he came back here 
Um, so yeah, I, I think that this song would risk us over talking it. And I think that those are basically all the ideas I had to work through. Uh, I learned a lot of cool words from this song. Um, and I actually found this cool website where I looked up like some of the words Nick would use in this song in um, my oxymatoid children, I think is a line in the first, it might be the first or second verse. Yeah. Our, my mixamatoid kids spraddle the streets. We've shunned them from the greasy grind, the poor little things. They look so old, sad and old as they mount us from behind. And I asked them to desist and to refrain even, I mean, come on, like what's going on there? Like, is that like the young eat the old? Yeah. I think it's like the new generation, like, Fucking him in the ass. Yeah, and it's uh, telling him he's a has been. It's all pretty. It's all pretty dark and kind of, you know, grotesque. But that's where, you know, the song itself is prolix. This is almost a six-minute song, but you could imagine it going on mm -hmm. forever. That chugging bass, that that chugging drum, the you know, sort of twangy, like Velvet Underground, like early Velvet Underground-y kind of sounding guitars. Um, the organ, like, I think all of it yeah, together. Yeah, I think there's a lot of Lou Reed just influence on this whole album. The jangliness of it. It's just a jangly song. It's like, yeah, I, I, it could almost be a Christmas song if they added a jingle bell in the background. Like I just, I think just because we are listening song to it, be a Christmas song. If you had a jingle bell in the background, well, it has like a Christmas rhythm to it, like the jing 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 jing. I'm just being a jerk. Yeah, well, not just being. You are. Everybody, news is out. Ian's <laughs> a jerk. <laughs> uh, but without going on too long, um, watch a. I recommend to the listeners watch a a, a video of this live because it's. It just makes me want to see Nick Cave live more often. Yeah, that little um, break in the song that you were talking about, where it's like a break beat almost, that like little noisy, you know, interlude almost. Yeah, and then it, it's a completely so different live, sound. I don't and know. Then it if, goes, yeah, live. I don't know if it's like just being played over a PA. But Warren Ellis is messing with his pedals as if he's creating that noise. I don't know if it's just for show because it's like it sounds just like it does on the album. I don't know if it's just like a performance thing or if he's actually doing it, but it's really cool. Either I th way, I think he's playing it, and I think I think if you listen, it's kind of hard because it's live footage and the audio quality isn't great on some of those videos. But I think he's messing. Like, listen to this song in some nice headphones. Sit down. Close your eyes because you will hear all of these things going on. And at first you're going to hear just the drums and the bass and Nick. And then the second lesson, you'll hear the organ and you'll hear the guitar. And then the third lesson, you'll start to hear the lyrics. And then the, I mean, I listened to the song a lot to prepare for the episode because there's so much going on. And also I would argue that the bad seats have always been solid. I think this album and Let's let's just kind of call this like post Grinderman one. I think this is some truly like 
this is like this stuff that aging musicians dream of being and yeah it is spectacular to behold this song from a 51 year old nick cave when i mean this is it's so hard for me because i feel like nick cave is so universally liked and also just like no one talks about him in the circles i roll around in so i don't want to i don't want to come off like some like you know new fanboy but i am consistently impressed by his ability to just maintain himself maintain himself as a performer alone as a vocalist alone he's he hasn't missed a beat i think the final thing my final takeaway from this song is a lot of this song is dealing with the idea that if you explain your art you can weaken it yet i feel like at the same time this song is sort of explaining Nick Cave's philosophy on music because without ever saying it, I feel like most of his career has dealt with the ideas of using themes of religion and like using ideas from religion, but not believing in religion. So like, which is kind of how I feel personally, like not believing in God, but recognizing that a lot of these ideas from religion are valuable and can give your life meaning. And I feel like that's the crux of this song. It's like, yeah, maybe God isn't real, but there's like a beauty and a poetry in the ideas. Yeah, there's there's something to, you know, someone might have a Batman book that's like their Bible. That's like what, I hope you aren't taking your, you know, social cues from Bruce Wayne, but that's on you. But what I'm getting at is that. But yeah, something you hold holy. Yeah, exactly. And I kind of got, I kind of derailed myself here, but there's the website that I was mentioning is that like from way back from dangerousminds.net is they did an article about Nick Cave's handwritten dictionary. And basically from the time he started being a musician, he had this like scrap, like notebook where he would just write down words that he wanted to use for songs and he, I'll, I'll send you the link uh, in a text, but um, it, it the, I mean, this, this is, this is the thing is like, I think we all think that being a writer is like this grand, like you're just sitting and chugging coffee and smoking cigarettes and you think it's supposed to be like fun the whole time. And I think that you can live that way, but I also think that it's a lot of work. It's a lot of like learning. It's a lot of like. That's what the, that's what the whole thing of this song is, is like, don't work too hard because then you're going to have this wordy piece of crap that no one's going to read because it's too wordy and full of itself. But also take the time, like, you know, devour the old and the new, you know? <laughs> yeah. Fuck, fuck any, like, fuck the critics and the expectations, you know, and just take the refrain, keep asking yourself as the author to explain, like explain what you're here. Why are you here? What are you doing? Um, so without further it's, ado, it's, a, it's like a cynical, it's like a cynical way to say n not to be cynical. It is in it. I don't think the song could be any shorter or longer, but I think it's the most succinct message 
of Nick Cave's entire career as far as like what he has been trying to do as a writer. Yeah, this, I mean, we, we said meta like a hundred times, but I feel like this era is around when he starts being meta a lot. And that makes sense. 2008 is kind of when the culture started being meta a lot. So it all lines up. Yeah. And I mean, 2008, like just, well, Occupy Wall Street was happening around then. Barack Obama was president, was running for president. Um, a lot of change, big changes were happening. Now, Occupy was like 2011 because I was out of high school. Oh, okay. I always associated with like 2009 for some reason. I remember 2008 would have been like the financial crisis, though, at least in America. Remember when gas was like $5 a gallon? Oh, my God. Yeah, that was insane. Um, well, without further ado, I mean, Ian, it might still be $5 a gallon where you are, but. What? Well, without further ado, what do you want to rate this? I rate this a 10. I think this is the best. I, I would have to do some thoughts to see if it's like the very best lyrics he's ever written, but this is probably the funniest and the mm -hmm. most like at his peak cleverness. So yeah, this is a 10. This is my favorite song on this album. I listen to it all the time. Well, I'm going to give it 10 bags of popcorn out of 10. Ooh, why popcorn? Because this is a real showstopper. Because you've been watching on the On Cinema universe? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, it was just a little joke for me and Ian to it. share, but any On Cinema fans out there, that's for you too. Um, but no, I, I'll, I'll keep the rating. I will say it's it's my first popcorn. Uh, this is a song that I, <laughs> I think it could be on the big screen, and I think I'd love to see my favorite actor of all time, Tom Cruise, in it. Um, <laughs> all right. I can't bite Tim and uh, Tim Heidecker too much. Cause I, I, I'm, I'm hoping that one day I can get into the zoom chat on office hours and plug the podcast. Cause I think they like Nick cave and maybe you talked about going to a show. We need, we need to, uh, figure out a way blue if, when you're editing this later. Yeah. Let's get Tim Heidecker's, uh, contact info and try to have him as a guest on an episode. She's uh she had to take a leave of absence in the middle of the episode because my mom was here and now she's sad that uh she's gone. Mm. She, not she's not gone. What do you she think Tim Heidecker's? Left. What do you think Tim Heidecker's favorite Nick Cave song is or like album? Probably whatever sounds like the Beatles might. I was gonna I like. Like a love song, like a ballad, because he likes the Grateful Dead. He likes that, like kind of just like easy listening jam. Uh, I don't know if Tim stuff. likes the Grateful Dead. I think he hates. He always talks shit about the Grateful Dead. Um, I guess well, his album I, sure sounds a lot like the Grateful Dead. I, I, you know, coming from someone who I who I believe probably Sorry, has never heard a Grateful Dead song, I don't know how much that means anything. Uh, if I had to guess off the top of my head, I think that Nick, I think that. Tim probably likes Henry's Dream or he likes Boatman's Call. I think it's one or the other. I, I foresee thank that. Thank you, Jake. Thank you, Jake. Uh, so, yeah, I give this this is a 10, 10 popcorn out of 10 popcorn song. I'd love to see it on the big screen. I think it's like a big studio production <laughs> feeling. And uh, this is one of my favorite Nick Cave songs. And, um, yeah. Yeah. I, I'd love to see a movie about this song. Uh, maybe 
I don't know. It could be. It would be cool. So that is the episode, I think. Unless Ian has anything else. No. Uh, follow us on Instagram at Jubilee Street Pod. Email us jubileestreetpod at gmail dot com. Hit us up. And everybody have a happy new year. I know we're all sad that this year has to come to a close, but let's hope that next year can be just like this year. I think it's going to be even better. Well, not even better, but it'll be better than 2020. Even worse. Or better. It'll either be better or worse. Is tapping on the window. Hey, Doug, how you been? Doug? Well, he brings me a book on Holocaust poetry, hey, complete Doug? with pictures, and then he tells me to get ready for the it's rain. It's Doug Benson from I Love Nike. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you mean uh, Super Hot Nike, Doug?